For my talks this week, I've chosen a theme with a rather unusual title, Life's Bitter Pool. This is based on an incident in the history of God's people, Israel. Just after they had been miraculously delivered out of Egypt and had passed through the waters of the Red Sea as though on dry land, the incident is recorded in Exodus 15, verses 19 through 26. First, we look at the climax of their miraculous deliverance. Exodus 15, verses 19 through 21. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. That really was a tremendous triumph, wasn't it? Israel had passed through the waters of the Red Sea miraculously as if it was on dry ground. Then their enemy, the Egyptians, had followed them in, and God had brought back the waters over the Egyptians, swept them away, and put an end to that entire force of the enemy that was pursuing his people. Not one Egyptian survived. I'm sure the Israelites concluded that now all their troubles were over, and the rest of their journey to the Promised Land would be easy and uneventful. As a result, they were unprepared for what lay ahead. Now I'll read the thing that followed after this tremendous deliverance. We're still in Exodus 15, reading verses 22 through 24. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. In Hebrew, Marah is the word for bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Picture that scene for a moment. They'd experienced that glorious deliverance. They were triumphant, exulting. They felt everything was under God's control. And then it says they were led into the wilderness of Shur, led by God through Moses. And in that wilderness, they went three days without finding water. Of course, they had an emergency supply of water in their water skins with them, but that must have been running low. The children and the cattle were beginning to become thirsty. They were all weary with the hot and dusty journey. And then in the distance, they saw the gleam of water in this pool called Mara. And I'm sure some of them started to run, to get there, to quench their thirst. But oh, what a bitter disappointment when they stooped down to drink. The waters were so bitter they couldn't drink. Now the people were totally unprepared for that situation. They couldn't conceive that such a thing would happen to them when God was actually leading them and when God had just granted them such a tremendous deliverance and victory. The people were unprepared, but there was one person who was not unprepared, and that was God. And let me tell you, no matter how many times we may feel unprepared, God is never unprepared. God never has an emergency. God is never confronted with a situation that he doesn't have an answer to. Now, the people grumbled, but one man, Moses, had the sense to pray. Scholars estimate there were probably something like three million Israelites there. Think of the noise of three million people all grumbling at one time. I'm sure it must have been hard for Moses to hear his own voice in prayer. But Moses did the sensible thing. He prayed, and this is what followed. Now we're in Exodus 15, verses 25 through 26. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, 
If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. First of all, I need to say a word about that word tree. In the Hebrew language, the word tree is used for a tree while it's growing, but it's still used for a tree when it's cut down, when it becomes a long plank or a beam or whatever that may be. So we don't know from the words there whether the tree was growing and Moses had to cut it down or whether it was a tree that had fallen, just a long beam. But whatever it was, it was the key to the situation. And when Moses picked that tree up and threw it into the water, the water became sweet. It's important to see that the scripture does not say the tree made the water sweet. There was nothing magical about the tree. It was the supernatural power of God that made the water sweet. But the casting in of the tree was the act of faith that released the miracle working power of God into that water. And that's how God's miracle working power is usually released in our lives. It takes a specific act of faith to release the miracle working power. The, the act of faith is the key that unlocks the miracle working power of God and makes it available in the situation where we need it. This particular principle is illustrated many times in the ministry of the prophet Elisha later on in the Old Testament. For instance, there was a stream near Jericho of which the waters were bad. They didn't make the ground fertile. People couldn't drink them. Elisha just took some salt, threw it into the water, and said, Thus saith the Lord, these waters are healed. And they were healed, not by the salt, but by the supernatural power of God. But casting the salt into the water released the supernatural power of God. That's the principle. The, the act of faith is the key that unlocks the miracle-working power of God. And interestingly enough, you can go to Jericho today and still see that stream flowing. They call it Elisha's stream. The water is still pure and fresh today. So that was a miracle that had a long-lasting effect. In another situation, Elisha was confronted by some food which had been poisoned. The people were about to suffer perhaps even death. Elisha took some flour, threw it into the pot, and said, The pot is healed. It wasn't the flower that counteracted the poison. It was the supernatural power of God. But the supernatural power of God was released by that act of faith. And so it was here with these bitter waters. Moses threw the tree in, and that act of throwing in the tree released the power of God that turned the bitter waters into sweet. Now, this story, of course, goes back well over 3,000 years. But the truths it contains are as vivid and as real today as in the time of Moses. Today, and for the rest of this week, we're going to look together at some of these truths and see how they apply to our own lives and our own situation at this time. Two lessons stand out for me from this story of the bitter pool that we've just been looking at. The first lesson is great victories prepare us for great testings. The fact that God has given you a tremendous deliverance, a tremendous victory, a tremendous blessing, a tremendous healing, whatever it may be, does not mean that the rest of your life is going to be without further testing. The greater the victory, the greater the test that you'll be able to face on the basis of that victory. That was Israel's mistake. They thought because they'd had this tremendous deliverance, nothing else could happen that would ever challenge their faith. Consequently, they weren't ready when they came to the bitter pool. Instead of praying, they grumbled. The second lesson, and this is vital, is that the bitter pool was in God's program. God actually led them to the bitter pool. He had a purpose in bringing them to that bitter pool. And this is true in our lives. God, from time to time, permits us to be confronted with a bitter pool, but he has a purpose. Let me just give you a few contemporary examples of the kind of bitter pool that you and I may have to face. The first example I think of is a broken marriage. Alas, how many people today have had to face that bitter pool of a marriage that ended in divorce, the bitterness, the agony, the embarrassment, the wounds that are left so deep in human personality. Another kind of bitter pool is a business failure. Perhaps you may have worked for years to build up some kind of a business, to establish yourself financially, and then through circumstances you couldn't control, the economy changed, 
other things changed and you find yourself just broke, maybe quite well on in life, that's a bitter pool. Or you may have a health breakdown, a physical breakdown, or worse still, a mental or emotional breakdown. And now you're kind of putting together the broken pieces of a life that was strong and healthy and victorious. Another kind of bitter pool is disillusionment with a human leader. You followed somebody, you gave them your best in service. It may be a religious leader, it may be a political leader, or it might be a parent. And this person in whom you had confidence, whom you looked up to, suddenly one day you realized they weren't what they seemed to be. They had feet of clay. They'd failed you. Your confidence was misplaced. The question I'm going to ask you is, are you willing to learn the lessons God has for you in the bitter pool? If so, you need to listen to the rest of my talks in this series. Yesterday, I painted for you a picture of Israel's bitter disappointment. They'd had this glorious victory. No doubt they felt that all their problems had been settled once and for all. And then they went three days in the desert without finding water. They were thirsty, hot, weary, discouraged. They saw this pool of water gleaming there in the sun. But when they ran to it and stooped to drink, it was too bitter for them to drink. A terrible, bitter disappointment. You know, in speaking to large and small congregations at different times, I've often asked people how many of you have had to struggle with disappointment. And very few people in such a congregation would say, I've never confronted disappointment. It's one of the things that come across our way. And really, what I'm speaking about in my talks this week is how to understand and face disappointment and get the best out of disappointment. You see, the people were unprepared. They just assumed that everything was going to be easy from then on. There would be no more tests of their faith. But God was not unprepared. God knew what to do. He had the answer. The people grumbled and got nothing. Moses prayed and God showed him the answer. God had that tree ready. He knew what was to be done, but it was only through prayer that Moses could find the solution. And I pointed out in my talk yesterday two lessons that apply from that story for you and me today. The first lesson is that great victories prepare us for great testings. They're, they don't indicate that there'll be no more testings. The second lesson was that the bitter pool was in God's program. He led them there. He had a purpose. And then I said yesterday that we still come to bitter pools in our lives today. And I gave you some examples. A broken marriage, a business failure, a health breakdown, disillusionment with a human leader, or perhaps even with a human parent. Today I'm going to make a further application of this story. I'm going to speak on the purpose of testing. You see, the question in our lives is not whether we will experience testing, but only how we will respond to the testing. The testing there at Marah exposed an area in the character of the Israelites that needed to be dealt with, an area that was expressed in grumbling. Let me tell you this, that the Bible has nothing good anywhere to say about grumbling. And grumbling is a way not to solve your problems, but to magnify them. It's not the way out of your problems to grumble. And if, when you come under pressure, you begin to grumble, then you are like the Israelites. There's an area in your character that needs to be dealt with. God knew that area was there all along. But he had to let you come to the bitter pool so that you'd find out what was really inside you. You see, that act of grumbling indicates lack of faith, lack of gratitude, self-centeredness, a lot of things that are serious problems and that hinder our further progress in the Lord. The Lord had a lot further for Israel to go than the pool of Marah. He really was taking them to the land that he'd promised. But they weren't fit to make the full journey to the promised land until that thing in their character, which was exposed at Marah, had been dealt with. 
So when you come to your Mara, your bitter waters, you begin to grumble. Realize that there's something in you that has to be dealt with. And God brought you to that place that he might deal with that thing. But he can only deal with it if you cooperate. You see, the Bible warns us clearly that we are going to experience testing. It's stated many times. One particularly clear passage is in the epistle of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I never read those words without asking myself, is that how I react to trials of many kinds? Is that how you react to trials of many kinds? When you're walking with the Lord and you're confronted with all sorts of trials, do you consider it pure joy? Do you say, hallelujah, praise God for this trial? Or do you do what the Israelites did, begin to grumble, Lord, why did you let that happen to me? God, I thought you had this situation in control. Now I don't know what to do. Let me read on what James says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, one essential element in Christian character is perseverance. Until we achieve perseverance, there are goals in God which we can never attain to. And perseverance is brought out by testing our faith. You see, there's only, really only one way to learn perseverance, and that is by persevering. And in order to persevere, you have to be in a situation where perseverance is needed. James says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's God's goal for you. Mature, fully grown up, complete, a fully rounded Christian character, not lacking anything. Do you want that? Do you want to be mature and complete, not lacking anything? How could you wish anything else? All right then you have to go through the processes. And the process may include your particular Mara, your particular bitter pool. You see, when, when you come to the bitter pool, there's just two alternative responses. The people grumbled. That was the response of unbelief. Moses prayed. That was the response of faith. Which will you do? Next time you come to that bitter pool, which are you going to do? On the shore of that bitter pool, Moses prayed. He cried out to the Lord. There was no other source of help but the Lord. And when Moses took that course to pray rather than to grumble, the response of faith rather than the response of unbelief, God responded with a new revelation of himself. And that was God's purpose in bringing Israel to that bitter pool. He had something for them to learn. And he set them in a context, a situation, where the revelation he had for them would be appropriate. He responded with a revelation of himself. It was a double revelation, and I'm going to deal with that more fully in my following talks this week. First of all, he revealed to them the tree, the means of healing. Second, and more important still, he revealed to them himself in a new aspect, the Lord, their healer. That was his ultimate objective in that experience at the bitter pool. But today, I just want to point out to you the principle. The principle has been summed up very succinctly in a statement that I heard somebody make once. And actually, I really didn't like the statement when I heard it the first time. Because I thought, you know, this doesn't suggest that life is going to be the way I'd like it to be. But the statement was this. Man's disappointments are God's appointments. I've said already that a disappointment is one of the things that nearly all of us face. And disappointment really is bitter. It is a bitter pool. When you've had your hopes set high and you're moving forward and everything seems to be going right, and then it all falls apart, it crumbles, and you're left with nothing but disappointed hopes. That's a bitter pool. But what I want you to grasp today, I really want you to take this in. 
God led you to that bitter pool. He has something good for you at the bitter pool, if you respond the right way. Man's disappointments are God's appointments. We have something to do with human nature, but when everything's going well and life is pretty easy, most of us tend to be somewhat superficial. We'll be content with the status quo. We'll be content to go to church and pay our tithes and say our prayers and lead a fairly respectable kind of life. But God has got something much further and much deeper for us. And so, somehow or other, he gets us to the bitter pool. And in the depths of agony and disappointment, we cry out as Moses cried. And then we get that much deeper and fuller revelation of God which only comes on the shores of the bitter pool. So if you've faced a bitter pool, or if you're facing a bitter pool, just bear in mind that your disappointment is God's appointment. As you will recall from our last two talks, great victories prepare us for great testings. The fact we've had a great victory doesn't mean we'll never be tested. Rather, it means we'll be better equipped for the next test. Second, the bitter pool was in God's program. He had a purpose in bringing his people there. It was he who led them there. And that's true often in our lives. The bitter pool is part of God's program. He has a purpose. Third, the question is not whether we will experience testing, but only how we will respond to the testing. Fourth, in this case of the bitter pool, there were two alternative responses. The people grumbled, Moses prayed. The people who grumbled got nothing. The man who prayed got the answer. The next principle, to Moses' prayer of faith, God in turn responded with a new revelation of himself. And that was God's purpose, to bring his people to the place where they could receive the revelation that he had for them. And I summed that up in that little phrase, man's disappointments are God's appointments. Today I'm going to speak about the revelation that God had for his people there at the bitter pool. There were two aspects to the revelation. The first was the revelation of the healing tree. The second was the revelation of God, the healer. Today I'm going to speak about the first aspect of that revelation, the healing tree. Let's look back for a moment at the particular verse in Exodus 15 which speaks about that tree. Exodus 15, verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So the, the solution to the problem was found there in that tree. Now that tree speaks of one of the main things themes of the entire Bible. It speaks of another tree that was raised perhaps 2,400 years later on a hill called Golgotha, the cross. Whenever you read in the Bible about a tree, you should be alert to see if there is really a reference to the cross of Jesus. We need to understand the Hebrew use of the word tree, which I touched on the other day. In the Hebrew language, the word for tree is used for a tree when it's growing, but it's still used for a tree after it's been cut down, when it's maybe just a long pole or some such thing, still referred to as a tree. So a tree can also be a gibbet, a gallows, or a cross. Let's look at some of the examples. First of all, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So there was a way of executing a person which was often followed in the Old Testament. The person was hung on a tree. Sometimes he was killed first and then hung on the tree. Sometimes he was killed by hanging him on the tree. 
but the law of Moses stated that no man must ever be left hanging on a tree overnight, because anyone who hangs on a tree is a curse. And you will remember in the record of the crucifixion of Jesus, after Jesus had died on the cross, the Jewish religious leaders went to Pontius Pilate and asked that the body might be taken down because they did not want it to remain there over the following holy day. They did not want that curse displayed on a holy day. Now, Paul takes this ordinance of the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, and in the epistle to the Galatians, he uses it to interpret the full significance of the death of Jesus on the cross. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's a quotation from the passage in Deuteronomy I just read. He, that's Christ, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So, you see, in God's purpose of redemption, Jesus was permitted to become a curse. He took the curse that was due to a lost, fallen race, to our Adamic race. He became that curse, that he might redeem us from the curse, and that in place of the curse, we might inherit the blessing. And the evidence that Jesus became a curse for us was that he was hung on that tree on the cross. And so those who knew the word of God from the Old Testament knew that in that act, Jesus, in the purpose of God, became a curse that we might receive the blessing. So that's the exchange. Jesus became the curse that we might receive the blessing. That's like the waters of Marah. Jesus took the bitter that we might be able to drink the sweet. He took the curse that we might have the blessing. So... When you think of the tree that was cast into the water, you want to think of the cross of Jesus and the fact that on that cross Jesus took the bitter curse that we might have the sweetness of the blessing. So that Moses casting that tree into the pool is an example or a pattern or a picture of you and me taking what was accomplished on our behalf on the cross and using it to make our bitter pool sweet. I'd also like to read a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, where again the cross is referred to as a tree and the same truth is brought out. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, Jesus became sin that we might receive his righteousness. He was wounded that we might be healed. All that is brought out in the use of the word tree for the cross. It was on that tree that full healing was obtained for the whole human race. Spiritual healing from sin, physical healing from sickness, deliverance from the curse, the right to inherit the blessing. All that was accomplished through that tree which is the cross. And so as you picture in your mind Moses casting the tree into the bitter water that it might be made sweet. Then you can picture yourself taking the truth of the cross, applying it in your life, and turning your bitter pool into sweetness. The healing and the deliverance that come from that tree, which is the cross, the cross of Jesus, must be applied in our lives by an act of faith. Just as Moses, by an act of faith, threw that tree into the bitter water, so we too have to exercise faith when we confront that bitter pool, faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and as it were, metaphorically, take that tree and throw it into the bitter pool. There must be an act of faith to release that miracle-working power that's in the cross of Jesus Christ to make the bitter waters sweet. And I want to suggest to you certain very simple practical steps that you can take in your life if you're confronted by the bitter pool to change that bitter pool into sweet. First of all, recognize that the bitter pool is in God's program. God led you there. He knows all about it. 
and he has the remedy. Second, let God deal with any defects in your character that have been exposed by the bitter pool. If you've grumbled when you should have prayed, bear in mind there's something in you that has to be dealt with by the Holy Spirit. Third, by faith accept what Jesus did for you on the cross. His own self, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might be dead to sin and live to righteousness, by whose wounds you were healed. Not you will be healed, but you were healed. As far as God's concerned, it's already done. It's finished. It's accomplished. And now listen. Here's the fourth and the vital step. Begin to thank God for what Jesus has done on your behalf. Begin to receive by thanking him whatever it is you need. Forgiveness, healing, whether it's emotional or physical. Release from resentment, bitterness, rebellion, confusion. You see, thanking God in faith corresponds to throwing that tree into the water. The purest expression of faith that you and I are capable of is simply thanking God, not seeing any change, not waiting for the evidence, but believing what God says about the cross of Jesus and then beginning to thank him for what was done on our behalf on the cross. Thanking him releases that miracle-working power to change the bitter water to sweet. Yesterday we looked at the first aspect of the revelation, the healing tree. And I pointed out that the word tree in Hebrew is used of a tree, whether it's growing or whether it's cut down. It's used of a gallows, of a gibbet, and it's used of the cross. And so that tree there that made the bitter's water sweet is for you and me a picture of the cross of Jesus. On the cross of Jesus, he was made a curse. That's from the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus received the curse that we might receive the blessing. Jesus drank the bitter that we might enjoy the sweet. On the cross, he was wounded that we might be healed. On the cross, every human need was met by the substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's the healing tree. The revelation of what was accomplished for you and me by the death of Jesus on that tree which was the cross. Today I want to look at the second aspect of the revelation, the Lord our healer. You see, in every spiritual experience in which we relate to God and we receive provision from God, we always need to look beyond the provision to the provider. The provision was the tree, but the provider was the Lord. And the Lord did not allow Israel merely to receive the revelation of the tree, but the revelation of the tree led up to the revelation of the Lord as their healer. I'll read these words again in Exodus 15, verses 25 and 26. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer, or I am the Lord, your healer. You see, the ultimate revelation was not a revelation of a provision, but a revelation of the provider. And that's a very important principle that you need to lay hold of. Every revelation of God, if we follow it through to its intended conclusion, will bring us to God himself. I am the Lord, your healer. That word that's translated healer, is the modern Hebrew word for a doctor. It hasn't changed in over 3,000 years. And that's exactly what it means. We need to understand that. The Lord desires to be his people's doctor, our physician. It was that revelation for which he was preparing his people when he brought them to the pool. It is a revelation it is not something that the natural mind can receive. Normally we have to come into some kind of a situation 
where we need the revelation. Many years ago, I myself lay for one year on end in hospital with a condition that the doctors were not able to heal. And in that situation, through the Bible and through the Holy Spirit, the Lord revealed himself to me as my doctor. I am the Lord, your healer, your doctor, your physician. That's the revelation to which he's bringing us. You see, one thing we have to understand is that God never changes. He not merely was his people's doctor, he is his people's doctor. Let me just read to you two or three scriptures. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, right at the end of the Old Covenant. I, the Lord, do not change. Or, I am the Lord, I do not change. He was, he is, he will be. He doesn't change. Our healer, our physician. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You know, so many times we can believe for yesterday and we can believe forever, but what about today? We can believe, oh, it happened in the Bible and it'll happen when we get to heaven, but don't forget it's today too. Today Jesus Christ is the same as he was when he was on earth. Today God is the same as he was at the bitter pool. He is our physician, our doctor, our healer. There's one verse in the New Testament that describes the ministry of Jesus on earth, which I think says it more completely in one verse than anywhere else I know. It's Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter is speaking to the household of Cornelius, and he's describing the ministry of Jesus on earth as he himself witnessed it. And this is what he says, Acts 10, 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. See, what blesses me is we have all three persons of the eternal Godhead. God the Father anointed Jesus the Son with the Holy Spirit. And what was the result? Healing, liberation, deliverance, wholeness for everybody that Jesus came in contact with. Uh, it seems to me, if I can say it reverently, there's almost a jealousy between the persons of the Godhead when it comes to blessing the human race. Not one of them wants to be left out. The Father anointed the Son with the Spirit that all of them might share in this ministry of mercy and deliverance and making whole. This is the revelation of God's eternal nature. God allowed his people to come to a place of need there at the waters of Mara so that they might receive the revelation. Now today, if you're in a place of need, if you feel that you're faced with those bitter waters, I want to suggest to you that you take the attitude, God permitted this, God is in this, he has a program. I won't grumble, I'll pray, I'll wait on God, I'll allow him to speak to me, I'll let him show me the revelation that he has for me in this situation. I want to emphasize once more that the full purpose of God was not merely to reveal the tree, but to reveal himself. I think this needs to be said to multitudes of Christians today. We are never intended by God to stop short at an experience, at a doctrine, at a revelation, at a blessing. Thank God for every one of those things that we receive, but we cannot rest in them. Each one of them, in a sense, is somewhat impersonal and impermanent. What we need in the last resort is a person, and every true doctrine or revelation we receive will always lead us, in the end, to the person of God himself. I want you to follow me just in a few scriptures from Old and New Testament that bring out this principle. Exodus 19.4, God said to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice, the, the purpose of God was to bring Israel to himself, not just to the law, not just to a covenant, not just to the promised land, but to himself. That's always God's purpose. And then in Psalm 73, verse 26, the psalmist says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. God is my portion, not some blessing, not some experience, not some revelation. God is my portion. I'm not going to settle for anything less than God himself. Isaiah 12, 2, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's a revelation. When you can say the Lord is my salvation, not the church, not a doctrine, not an experience, but the Lord, there you are secure. There you've come to the fullness of the revelation. Don't stop short at the tree. Don't stop short at the experience. No matter how blessed it may be, always move on to the revelation of the Lord himself. And then those beautiful words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the ultimate invitation. Come to me. I will give you rest. Don't stop short at anything less than God manifested in Jesus himself. Come to him. He will give you rest. You see, the human heart craves a person. The human heart can never be satisfied with something impersonal. Ultimately, we need a person. And God is the person that every one of us needs and needs to come to know. Our theme this week has been life's bitter pool. This has been based on the experience of the Israelites in the desert when they came to the pool of Mara and found the water too bitter to drink. You remember they'd had that tremendous deliverance? They'd passed through the Red Sea as though on dry ground, and then they'd gone out into the wilderness for three days, found no water, come to a pool, thought that they would be able to drink it, and then, to their disappointment, found that it was bitter and could not be drunk. And I've suggested to you that there's a bitter pool somewhere in the life of nearly every one of us, a place of bitter disappointment, where something that gleams and shines and seems so beautiful is not really what we thought it would be. I suggested some examples that are common in our contemporary culture today, kinds of bitter pools that you and I may have faced or may have to face. A broken marriage, a business failure, a health breakdown, or disillusionment with a human leader. And yet we saw, as we studied that incident in the history of Israel, that the bitter pool was in God's program for Israel. And I believe the same can be true in the life of each one of us. God permits us to come to the bitter pool because he has a purpose. Then when God's purpose is accomplished, the bitter, through the supernatural work of God, turns to sweet if we respond aright to God's dealings. It's so important that we respond aright Today I'm going to express this vital truth of our experience as a comprehensive principle that operates in every area of life. In fact, I would say that God has built this principle into the operation of the universe itself. There are two passages I particularly have in mind that state the principle. The first is found in the Old Testament. The second, which we look at later, is found in the New. First, we look at the passage in the Old Testament. It's found in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. This is a prophetic passage which I believe is coming into fulfillment in our day. It's the promise of God to his people Israel to restore them, to restore them to himself, to restore him to the blessings that he has for them, to restore them to their land. And here in Hosea, he describes the way that he's going to work out their restoration. I want you to listen carefully because, as so often, the way God does things is not the way you and I would expect him to do things. And therefore, we have to be, as it were, watchful, or we'll miss what God is doing. This is what the Lord says concerning the restoration of Israel in Hosea 2, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, I am now going to Alyoha. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. See, sometimes God begins to allure us. That word is a rather mystical word. It's, it contains the thought of somehow dealing with us in a way that we don't fully understand, and yet we feel drawn. He says, I will lead her into the desert. The desert is not normally the place of blessing. And speak tenderly to her. Literally in Hebrew, the Lord says, I will speak to her heart. 
That's a very beautiful expression in Hebrew. You see, it's not always possible for God to speak to our heart. Sometimes our heart is closed. Sometimes we're not responsive. So God has to work in our lives and bring about situations like bringing Israel into the desert where he can speak to our heart. Then this is what he says. Once he's gained her attention, there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Echor a door of hope. You need to know that in Hebrew the word Echor means trouble. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. That phrase door of hope in Hebrew is Petach Tikva, and it's the name of one of the major suburbs of Tel Aviv today. But it's taken there from that passage in Hosea. I will make the valley of Echor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And you notice we, we saw earlier in the story of the bitter pool how Miriam and all the women of Israel sang there on the shores of the Red Sea. God says, I'm going to give her back a song. Maybe I'm talking to some right now who've lost the song. I think it's tragic when a Christian loses that song. You used to have a song in your heart. You used to praise the Lord so freely and spontaneously. And now there's a heaviness. There's a doubt. There's a kind of sense of being left out. God wants to give you your back, your song. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And now we come to the purpose of God, the revelation. Just as at the bitter pool, there's a revelation of himself that God wants to give. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. See, under the old covenant, Israel's relationship to the Lord was a marriage relationship, but they knew him as Baal, as, as master. It was, a, it, was a, it was a relationship not really based on heart commitment, on deep personal love. But God says, when I restore you, you'll not come back on the same level of revelation. You'll come back on a higher revelation. You won't just call me my master. You'll call me my husband. That's a very intimate word in Hebrew. I'll show you myself in a new light. I'll show you myself as the one who loves you, as a husband loves his wife. It's a revelation of love, of deep tenderness. So you see, God's purpose in dealing with Israel was to bring them to a new revelation of himself. When I see in history all the infinite wisdom and patience of God he has expended in dealing with Israel and is still expending, I, I take tremendous courage in my own life. I think if God is so patient with, with a nation, then he can be that patient with me. And even if I do have to go through the valley of trouble, if I will continue, if I will persevere, not give up, not turn back, not grumble, not start to complain, then that valley of trouble will become for me, as for Israel, a door of hope, a door that leads me to a new and deeper and fuller revelation of the Lord, a revelation of his love and his compassion and his tenderness. You know, sometimes it's only in seasons of grief that we can really appreciate compassion and tenderness. So if it's the bitter pool, bear in mind that out of the bitter pool, God is going to reveal himself to you if you will let him speak to your heart. Now, I want to illustrate this same principle of God's dealings from a passage in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul, where Paul is writing in a very personal vein about experiences that he himself had gone through, very hard, difficult experiences. The passage is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, 
literally it's from such a death, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. There's a man speaking out of personal experience. He said, we were under such pressure, we despaired of life. It was far beyond our ability to endure. Do you suppose that Paul was out of the will of God in that situation? There's no indication, whatever. He was in the full will of God. He was doing the purpose of God. He was being used of God. And yet God permitted him to come into that situation of pressure where it seemed the very life was being pressed out of him. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt, I can't take another step? There's not one more ounce of pressure that I can endure. God, why are you permitting this? Well, Paul and many other servants of the Lord have been through that before you. And there is a reason. God's reason is stated by Paul. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, God wants to bring us to a place where we're at the end of all confidence in ourselves. We've reached the absolute limit of our own knowledge, our experience, our strength, our ability. We've entered into an experience of death, and then out of that death, God supernaturally moves to bring us into a resurrection which is on a far higher level than we were living on before we experienced that death. You see, God always is leading us upwards. He's leading us onwards. But if he's going to bring us into a resurrection, he has to bring us through a death. I've experienced that in my own life. And I remember I cried out to God once and I said, God, why do you only bless the things that first die and then are resurrected? And I felt God gave me this simple answer. He said, because when I'm allowed to resurrect something, I resurrect it in the form that I want it to be in. And so if you're going to go through an experience of death, remember there's a resurrection. Remember there's a new revelation of God, a deeper, fuller knowledge of God. If you'll just hang on and trust him and believe him.